All right, man. Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start a verse-by-verse study through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. Sermon on the Mount is often misapplied and misunderstood. One group historically has said that it's a plan of salvation. If we ever hope to go to heaven, we need to obey these rules and achieve this standard of righteousness. Another group calls it a charter for world peace and begs the nations of the earth to accept it. I had a friend of mine in high school who wasn't religious at all. Of course, I wasn't either, but he got a hold of, of the Sermon on the Mount and edited parts of it and uh, you know the, the parts that he liked uh, and said that this was the way to, to live and to achieve world peace. Uh, still, a third group tells us that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't apply to us today, but that it was uh, only applicable should the kingdom be established on the earth and since that didn't happen, it's in suspension until Jesus returns and establishes his kingdom. What Jesus said in verse 20 of chapter 5 is a key to how we understand and apply his words. He says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And so he's talking about righteousness. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to be about Righteousness is how you're made right and stay right with God. Uh, And he says here that it has to do with the kingdom of heaven. So it's bigger than just the kingdom on earth. Uh, And so basically what we're going to learn about uh, is how to live the Christian life in any age at any time. The religious leaders had an artificial external righteousness. It was based on the Jewish law. But the Righteousness that Jesus is going to describe is true and vital. It begins internally in the heart. The Pharisees were concerned about the minute details of conduct, but they neglected the major matter of character. And so they might tithe from even their herb gardens, little leaves and that kind of thing, but they uh, had a, a vicious, hateful attitude towards the poor and uh, towards the uh, unfortunate and those kinds of things. And uh, we believe that conduct flows out of character. And so uh, Jesus is going to talk to us about Christian character, basically, in these verses. Whatever applications the Sermon on the Mount may have to world problems or to future events, it's certain that it has definite applications for us today. He gave this message to individual believers, not to the unsaved world at large. Uh, it just from a contextual point of view, you can't just take what Jesus said and apply it Uh, unless you're a Christian. What was taught in the Sermon on the Mount is repeated in the New Testament epistles in different forms. And so it's silly to say that it's not for us today because uh, the very same things that Jesus taught his disciples, they taught their disciples, uh, and and it's been handed down to us in that way. And so it says in verse 1, and seeing the multitudes. It's interesting. It can't be proved, but it's possible that the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' standard sermon. 
Uh, and we don't think that way because when you read through the Gospels, you think, well, Jesus said this and that's the only time he said that. I mean, it, it, you, you still kind of, or I, I still kind of have that Jesus of Nazareth television idea of Jesus that he, his words were few. And, and he maybe said this one time and that was it. But the truth is, if you just look at ministry uh, and the ministry of, of men who are itinerant today, you know, that go from church to church, uh, they, they will have a message, sometimes a single message, and they add to it or take from it, but that's what they're known for. Gail Irwin, for example, many of you are familiar with Gail Irwin and, and his uh, Jesus style uh, books, the Jesus style, the servant style, uh, the, uh, you know, spirit style. I mean, but basically he's always talking about the same thing from a, a different aspect of it. And, and so uh, I just think it's interesting that this was probably a sermon that Jesus gave many different times. It's really the heart of, of his teaching. Uh, it, it was the core of his itinerant message, a simple proclamation of how God expects us to live, contrasting with the Jewish misunderstanding of that life. And it may be that when Jesus preached to a new audience, he often preached this sermon or used themes from it. And so I just want to expand our thinking about uh, Jesus and his teaching. and go, It doesn't limit it, it, it expands it. So rather than think that he did this one sermon on the mountain and everybody, hey, what did he say? Did you guys write that down? I didn't get that. Uh, obviously, these were his themes. He goes on and he uh, it goes on, Matthew says, he went up on a mountain. Uh, the sanctuary for the greatest sermon ever preached was really a large hill. Until this sermon, it was just part of a a lot of sloping hills that were there in the region. Uh, but after this, the disciples remembered, you know, this is the one they, that Matthew recorded. And he said, hey, that was the Sermon on the Mount. And, and it, it, they identified it with that place because it, it had meaning to them and experience. We don't live according to experience. We live according to the exposition of the Word of God. You know, we, we're people that are more given to analytical uh, thought and, and to rational understanding of what God's Word says. Uh, we reject, you know, way out radical, charismaniac type experiences. But at the same time, there need, we need to experience the love of God. We, you know, it's a personal relationship that we have with the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with having certain times and places in your life that are sweet and, and precious to you. Uh, I know when we were going to church after we first got saved down at Calvary Chapel of Lake Arrowhead in the conference center there in the old auditorium. It was just a, really a special time to us because of what the Lord was doing in our lives. Uh, and then throughout the years, there have been maybe one or two events here and there or certain things that, that you look back on, and you're glad that you had that experience. Uh, and, and that's why sometimes... It is important for us to engage, you know, to go places, to do things, to go on a retreat, uh, get to this event that a church or the church is having, because you never know what kind of an experience you're going to have there with the Lord, uh, what he might show you that is precious to you. Uh, and, um, you know, it doesn't have to happen all the time. I think that's the danger of experience. We're always looking for experience. And when you get into more of the hyper or ultra Pentecostal wing of Christianity, if there isn't an experience, then nothing happened as far as they're concerned. It's, it's as if the Holy Spirit is shy and he needs to be invited 
and then once he comes in, he goes bananas, you know, and stuff. But but if something doesn't happen, they don't feel as though he he was present there, and so that's why there's kind of a well, they teach their children from a young age how to make things happen, how to be slain in the spirit, and how to to experience what they think is the presence of God. And, and, and I think it's kind of a sad thing because oftentimes it's not real. Uh, but we can make the opposite mistake, and, and there is a conservative uh, arm of Christianity that denies really the importance of experience. Uh, but, you know, the more we concentrate on our relationship with the Lord as a romance and as a love relationship, uh, you know, it, it, of course you want to have uh, experiences with Him. Uh, you know, the equivalent of, of it would be some kind of mail-order bride, you know, where you just say, hey, I, I need to get married and have some kids to, you know, run my farm and stuff. And so you get a mail-order bride and you just kind of go through the motions of, of being together and stuff. You don't want to have any experience of fun or joy or love or anything like that. And so I think sometimes uh, evangelical Christians who are really into the Word like we are can can be afraid of experiences as you know it's like somebody starts to talk about an experience and it's like well wait a minute you know the all the shields go up and you want to start telling them how that didn't really happen again with the shields you know so anyway uh so he he went up on this mountain and now it was the mount for them it, you, you, and they could refer to it and say hey do you remember when we were on the mount you know what, what mount it didn't even have a name it was just the mount, but it was the mount now for them because they had experienced something together with the Lord. And, and you know, the other thought here, uh, or another thought here, of course, is that uh, you can have an experience with the Lord in in the most unlikely places. Uh, sometimes people get too into, uh, you know, the building, for example. You know, this, this is where things happen, and this is what happens in the building. Uh, I have to tell you a story, and I, I'm just, it's just anecdotal, but it came to me yesterday. A uh, lady called from uh, Calvary Chapel of Modesto, and uh, she started asking me some questions about what we're doing on Wednesday nights because she had sent her uh, daughter's boyfriend, who's in the military, he's 19 or 20, he was visiting our church, and... Um, he reported to her, this is his report, I don't know if it's true, that one of the nights he was here we were taking communion and that he took communion uh, and someone behind him, she, who she identified as an older woman, now I don't know if that's 30 or 50 or 80, I, you know, it just depends on your frame of reference. An older woman leaned forward and supposedly told him that he had taken the cup out of order from you know, the, the bread or the wafer, and that he gulped it too fast. Uh, and, and, you know, now this lady thought it blew his mind. Gino called the guy, and he said, no, he thought it was kind of funny, actually, you know, that somebody was that weird. But uh, anyway, the point I'm trying to make is sometimes people, you get, it's not so much the building, but it's an idea of what Christianity is to you. And Christianity is taking communion a certain way. And if, if you take communion a different way, if the elements aren't passed out, and if there isn't a line of men on both sides holding trays and then this formal prayer, it's not communion. Uh, you know, it, we have a ten, you know, our kids are going to grow up thinking if everybody doesn't go up and get their own elements and pray and spend time with the Lord, that's not communion. What do you, this is too formal, you know. So uh, we just want to be careful that 
Um, we don't get locked into one idea, one place, you know, those kinds of things. We need to be open to what the Lord wants to do. He goes on and he says, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. A rabbi commonly sat while he taught. If he taught while he was standing or walking, it was considered to be informal or unofficial. It's kind of an off-the-cuff comment. Sitting was... Uh, uh, to teach as a posture was a body language that indicated formality and authority. It's interesting, that's why, I was just thinking about this the other day, but that's why even today we talk about professors holding a chair at a university. I mean, it's kind of weird, it's kind of antiquated, right? I mean, I don't know that there is a chair. You know, maybe there is. Maybe there's a chair of philosophy that they sit on, you know, the one chair. But the idea is that they are the chairman or or they hold the chair. And it comes from this idea that the the head honcho sits down in a chair when he teaches. Some of you with Roman Catholic backgrounds have heard of the Pope speaking. It's called ex cathedra. It means an official proclamation that is binding on all of the, the church. Ex cathedra literally means from his chair. And so this is the idea. So this, is, this has a, a long history. Um, sometimes I've thought about sitting down on Sunday mornings, you know, but, but the other part of it wouldn't work because the listeners always stood uh, to show respect <laughs> and, and uh, attention. You know, like today in the military, you, you, when you're at attention, you're usually not sitting down, uh, drinking coffee or, you know, that kind of thing. And so, so uh, teacher sat, listeners stood, judges sat. Yeah, we stand for them. So there's a big history of that. Now, there was a vast audience comprised of both disciples and inquirers. His disciples were the intended audience, both those who were currently following Jesus and any who would choose to follow him after the sermon. Uh, you know, it's not really recorded for us, but uh, you know, I just wonder what Jesus' altar call techniques were. It, it, well, think about it. I mean, you know, he gave these sermons and then, you know, did he, do you have the impression that he would just walk away and, and people decided on their own to follow him? I think that's the impression that we have. But uh, at the same time, we see him talking to the rich young ruler and engaging him in a personal evangelistic dialogue or to uh, Nicodemus and, and really getting in his face about, you know, the gospel and things like that. And, and so uh, we just don't know all of the things that, that Jesus was all about. We probably don't have his standard uh, altar call because we would, we would just use that and nothing else, thinking that that was the way to do it. That the caravans, the camels will wait. <laughs> oh. His 12 disciples would understand the righteousness Jesus spoke about in this sermon as the potential for living that was theirs because they were his followers and depended upon the Holy Spirit. The inquirers would see the standard of God's righteousness was impossible to keep apart from faith in him. And we're going to say this a lot. It's impossible to apply the principles and practices of the Sermon on the Mount unless you are born again. They, the prerequisite is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You, you can't do any of the Beatitudes. You can't do anything that Jesus recommends. You can't be the person that he says you must be. Uh, unless you have the Holy Spirit. At one point, he'll say, the, the line I use a lot in altar calls, you need to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, that's impossible. God has to declare you righteous. He has to, he has to 
see you justified from heaven's point of view and then uh, you begin to direct your life that way. As one author put it, one cannot behave like Jesus until one becomes like Jesus. And so it's useless to try and get unbelievers to follow the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 2, it says, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Now, this isn't just to state the obvious. Obviously, he needed to open his mouth if he was going to teach. These were the common words an author would use to introduce the idea that what was about to be said was of utmost importance. It's kind of like when they come out and they say, ladies and gentlemen, the president of the United States. Well, you know it's him. Uh, you know, you're there to see him. It's the State of the Union. It's his press conference. It's where you know it's him. It's not an imposter. Uh, but, but nevertheless, there is this introduction, and, and, and it's a somber, sobering introduction. This is the president of the United States. And it's obvious to everybody, but it, it puts weight on what he's about to say. And so uh, this is the Jewish way of saying, you know, he opened his mouth and began to teach. It says he taught his disciples. Thus, as I mentioned earlier, the sermon is not a plan for salvation. They were already followers of Jesus Christ. It was a way of supernatural living for those who were saved. For example, a little later, Jesus is going to call the hearers the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And so obviously he means to be addressing disciples, not unbelievers. You you would never look at an unbeliever and say, you are the salt of the earth. Well, no, you're not. Only a Christian is that because they have been... uh, They've come to Christ, they're filled with the Spirit, now they can have a purifying effect on others. His words were not meant as a way of improving social or political conditions on the earth. It wasn't then, and it wasn't now. Most Jews believed that their Messiah would be a political leader who would act militarily to free them from the yoke of Rome. But the thrust of Jesus' core sermon is that the work of the Messiah is first internal, not external. It is spiritual rather than material. There are no politics or social reforms really in the sermon, only a spiritual transformation. Now, the social gospel interpretation was very popular until the Second World War. (laughs) And then a lot of people gave up on that, and a lot of people gave up on Christianity. Uh, I know that uh, a lot of the philosophy that is popular today, taught in universities, came after the Second World War when people decided that Christianity had failed somehow. Uh, to change the world. And part of it was because they were thinking that Christianity was going to change the world and bring a kingdom kind of living uh, and that people were going to apply the Sermon on the Mount and teachings like that and we were all going to live happily ever after. And then when that didn't happen, they threw the baby out with the bathwater instead of somebody saying, well, you know, only Christians can live like that. This was never intended to be a social reform. Still, even today, there are those who feel that if societies would just follow this sermon, a lasting world peace would result. Uh, The sermon is clearly not meant for the tribulation or the millennium. As I mentioned earlier, those who think it is think Jesus was giving the law for his kingdom on earth. But when the Jews killed him and the kingdom was delayed, they they feel as though that was put on hold as well. Uh, And then when he returns, he will implement this. Uh, But... Jesus was calling upon his disciples to live out these things right then. Every principle taught in the sermon is repeated in some form, as I said. Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. He said that in Luke. As we bow to the king's authority, we become citizens of the heavenly kingdom. And so the kingdom of God is a real kingdom that is coming, but, it, but it's also something that exists spiritually 
wherever the Lord reigns. And so the kingdom of heaven is among us now as we live according to these kingdom principles. And when the Lord comes back, he will establish a literal kingdom. Um, This sermon is going to then define who we are through the grace of God working in our lives. Its impossible standards are made possible by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the sermon, we're going to see the effect of grace upon the law of God. The Jews had deteriorated to a point where they were just keeping the law externally. They had no internal uh, reformation going on. That's why Jesus could call them whitewashed tombs. They looked good on the outside, but inside they were full of decaying, rotting bones. Uh, And he meant to turn that around. Martin Lloyd-Jones compares the Christian life to the playing of music when it talks about law and grace. A person might be able to play a great piece of music by Beethoven or uh, whoever your favorite composer is. Mechanically, it might be accurate, but it would lack spirit. It, 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 you know, there, there are those who, who are just magnificent in their ability to, to do that. I was thinking about, <clears throat> as I'm watching the World Series, the different renditions of the, uh, you know, the Star Spangled ba- Banner and God Bless America. And uh, some of them are moving. Uh, and I think it has to do, sometimes at least, with the feeling of the, of the uh, performer, whether they really believe you know, in, in what they're saying or not. Other times it's just very mechanical. Uh, it, it's just there. Sometimes it's just lame. You know, but, but, uh, and so that's, the, that's one way of understanding. You, you, you have to say all the words and hit all the notes. You have to be mechanically sound if you're going to sing the Star Spangled Banner or God Bless America. But there is another dimension to it that you have to bring as well, a desire to sing it, a a, a passion that's behind it, uh, and then the rest of it falls into place. And so faithful Christians like us, we know and are concerned about the letter of God's law, but more so about knowing and expressing its spirit. The Sermon on the Mount takes God's law to the highest level of expression by the indwelling spirit, It's an elaboration of the one commandment Jesus gave, and that is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love one another as he has loved you, as he has loved us. Uh, And so we're not really being told to live like this in order to be Christian. We're being told that because you are a Christian, this is the way that you can live. So that's our introduction. That's what's going to be happening. We'll go through the Beatitudes one at a time. We'll just take it verse by verse in a true exposition and see what these things mean to us. Uh, but, but this is a kind of a charter for Christian living empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and so the idea is that we would desire to live this way and then believe that we can by faith because the Lord lives within us and then uh, chart our course through these things. And I, I don't know about you, but a lot of times just in my Christian life, I know the Holy Spirit, he'll, you know, something will happen and, and I will know a proper way to react. But I still have my flesh to contend with and I start arguing and think, well, yeah, I should react this way with love and compassion and concern and all of that, but I really want to react this way. Uh, I don't want to take it on the chin. I don't want to be the doormat. I don't, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and, and I, it, this is what we need to be learning and listening to in order to make those proper decisions. And that's why I think it's very important as a core view of what Jesus was all about in terms of how to live and how he wanted his disciples to live. Amen? Amen. God bless you guys.